Hello, I'm Vashi Kapelos, and welcome to the West Block Podcast. This week, we're in Washington, D.C. to talk about Canada-U.S. relations, which is especially significant as we head into round three of NAFTA negotiations later this month in Ottawa. In a few moments, we'll speak with someone who knows the deal perhaps better than anyone else. But first, here's your West Block primer. NAFTA. The sweeping free trade deal was struck more than two decades ago, but here we are again. I don't think we can make a deal. U.S. President Donald Trump has made it his mission to get his country a better deal, and Canada is caught in the crosshairs. Three-quarters of our exports go south of the border. Quite simply, the U.S. is our most important customer by miles and miles. Renegotiations kicked off in August, and the third of six rounds will happen in Ottawa later this month. The hope? That there's an agreement by the end of the year. The Canadian government is convinced it can happen. We are there to work cooperatively with our two other trading partners, as we've done throughout all prior NAFTA negotiations. We are more than willing to get it done in January, but uh, we want a good deal for Canada, not just any deal. The problem? So I think we'll end up probably terminating NAFTA at some point. Terminating NAFTA, of course, would come at an enormous cost for all three countries, including our own. Now, nobody knows more about NAFTA in this town than Ambassador Carla Hills, one of the deal's original negotiators. So does she think a deal can get done this time around? Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Ambassador Hills. It's a real pleasure to have you on our program. It's a great pleasure for me to join you. I wanted to ask you, of course, about NAFTA as one of the the architects of that original deal. We hear President Trump, and we're listening very closely in Canada, talk about the deal as a terrible one. What's your reaction when you hear him say that? I wish those around him would explain what the NAFTA actually does and that it created a market of 490 million consumers with $19 trillion of output, that uh, it opened up the three markets so that they could trade together that had been closed, particularly with respect to Mexico. And uh, it was a first step in trade opening in a number of areas. It was the first trade agreement that opened up services, that provided protection for intellectual property, that opened up the agricultural market between the United States and Mexico, that had protections for investors. Uh, The GATT didn't have that, the multilateral Uh, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade didn't have that. And when the Canadians, Americans, and Mexicans finished the agreement, and it took effect in 1994, within four months, the Uruguay round, which had collapsed in Brussels, the ministers came back to the table, adopted rules on intellectual property, first time, services, and a range of tariff reductions, some moderate agricultural uh, uh, rules, and uh, created the World Trade Organization. I believe it would not have happened without that competitive liberalization that started here in North America. Do you think his rhetoric on NAFTA is uh, dangerous, or does it disappoint you? The uh, renegotiation is important because the NAFTA is 25 years old, and the economy is in the 21st century, not in the 20th century. So there are many things that we didn't cover. You didn't have a cell phone in the early 90s. 
you didn't have a Twitter account or go on the internet. The uh, computers were big, husky, slow, and uh, that has changed. So we would need rules to govern with digital uh, tr uh, trade and flows and the new services that have developed. Mexico had a constitutional restriction on permitting private uh, investment in energy. Well, Canada is a big energy producer. Th that means that we need rules covering energy, but we couldn't have them in, 19, in the early 1990s. Today we can, today we should. And so we need to upgrade it. It's kind of like uh, upgrading an old but lovely house. You should paint it once in a while, and then after needs a good coat of paint. The public is watching these negotiations uh, go on. The third round takes place in Ottawa in a few weeks. We don't have any insight about what it's like behind closed doors. Uh, you obviously do. Was there this kind of scrutiny? I mean, I know the public was very divided at the time. Was there this, this kind of scrutiny when, when you were in the midst of negotiations? And was there ever a point where you thought it might not happen? No, I, I can't remember a point when it was going to break apart. I worried that it was taking too long. It took us 14 months, and that seemed like a long time to me. You know, when we started, um, it started out to be a bilateral agreement because we had signed an agreement with Canada. And uh, then I received a call from uh, the Canadian trade minister to say, Carla, you're leaving us out. And I said, this was John Crosby. I said, John, your government had a terrible time with the U.S. candidate agreement. I can't imagine you want to go through that again. <laughs> he said, well, I don't want to be left out. So what we did was convert it into a trilateral. And uh, I think it has made North America region the most competitive in the world. And you look around at the supply chains, we don't just sell things to one another, we make things together. 25 cents of every dollar we import from Canada is U.S. content. And 40 cents of every dollar that we import from Mexico is U.S. content. And that means that we are using intermediate products that we're making together. So let me ask you then finally, how optimistic are you? The timeline is, is fairly short. They want to finish talks by the end of the year. How optimistic are you, given what we've heard from the president and given what, what you've observed so far, that a deal can be reached? I think it's within the art of the possible to reach a deal. And it may be that uh, some of the more contentious issues that are not really part of the NAFTA uh, would be left for a later time. Uh, what are the likelihood of that happening? I think that that's below 50 percent. Really? I think that it's going to be very difficult to get a finished agreement. Our timelines of when we shake hands and say we've got a deal are quite lengthy. Under our uh, trade promotion authority, we have to give notice to the Congress before the President can sign the agreement, and that's uh, uh, 90 days. And there are many things that have to happen, much notice before we can sign, has to be published, and so forth. And so, uh, you run into the worry of the elections that come next year, both in Mexico in July, but next November 2018 
here in the United States. But I am hopeful that we will get a deal and uh, that we can get it. Uh, I would like to see us get it sooner rather than later, but let's not give up hope that we get it. Okay, well thank you so much for your time, Ambassador Hills. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to meet you. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Republican Congressman Kevin Kramer was one of the first members of Congress to come out in support of candidate Donald Trump. Late last week, he and the president traveled on Air Force One back to his home state for a rally there. We wanted to know if he could help us decipher what exactly Donald Trump is saying. Have a listen. Thank you so much, Congressman, for joining us here. Beautiful day, beautiful backdrop. I appreciate your time. I wanted to start off by asking you about NAFTA. Uh, obviously, a lot of Canadians watching and listening to everything that's coming out of this town where NAFTA is concerned. You're close to the president. I know you were on his plane a few days ago. When we hear, you know, NAFTA may have to be terminated or he wants to tear up the deal, how should we as Canadians be interpreting that? Well, I think we're all sort of learning how President Trump communicates and how he negotiates. And the first thing I'd say is read the book. You know, it's really important. Art think, of the deal. <laughs> yeah, read Art of the Deal, you'll have a better sense of things. One thing that I find about President Trump is while he does negotiate from his strongest position, whatever he you know, deems that to be, he generally comes to a position where there, where there's success. And, and if you doubt it, just look at what he, he did just this week in Congress with the continuing resolution, hurricane relief package. Um, when it comes time to pull the trigger and, and make the deal, he is not nearly as rigid or as, as ideological. If you were in Canada, would you be worried? Would you be concerned? Well, I, let me just say I would make sure that my negotiators were as schooled up as possible, both on his techniques and his strategy, as well as um, you know what's important for Canada, because nobody would expect the Canadian um, negotiators to be any less committed to their country than than ours are to our country or Mexico's is to their country. All of that said. It should never be lost or forgotten that President Trump intuitively understands that we're the big dog in this fight, that, that the United States economy is the, the, you know, the $20 trillion economy, and that access to our economy is more valuable probably to anybody, just about everybody else, than, than theirs is to us. So he negotiates from that position of strength all the time. So you, know, you, you might want to always push back, but the key is to know when to stop pushing. Speaking of access to your economy, you're of course one of the you know, bigger supporters of the Keystone XL pipeline. Can you update us as to, you know, we, we know the executive order was signed, but where do things stand right now? Do you see this pipeline really getting built? You know, really, the, I think the answer to that has to come from the company itself, because the company, TransCanada, has to make the determination based on um, commitments to putting oil in, in, into the pipeline and, you know, the access to the market or whether the market wants it. Um, I do see it getting done for a couple of reasons. One, with the president clearing the, you know, that, the first major hurdle, or maybe it should have been the last major hurdle, um, with his executive order, Right now, the biggest issue, of course, is the, is the state of Nebraska and making sure that they're comfortable with the route through their state. But there's, I think, a strong will to get it done. And the reason I say that is, you look at what's going on in Venezuela, as an example. Uh, in, you know, when I think of where I'd rather get eight, 800,000 barrels of uh, heavy sour crude per day, you know, Alberta or Venezuela, I'll take Alberta every time. I think the case for national and energy security 
global security, and frankly, North American security. I think the Keystone XL pipeline becomes more valuable, not less. With respect to Keystone, we have heard from the president, uh, you know, about American workers being involved, American steel being involved, uh, the possibility of a greater share of the profits going to the U.S. government. Can you clarify exactly what um, what this administration would be looking for from Keystone that differs from the project in the past? When I have talked to him, what, what I've often pointed out to him, and I think he's, he understands, is first of all, a lot of the pipe for the Keystone XL, you know, has been laying on the ground in staging areas for many, many years, some of it in North Dakota. The other thing that I think he finds encouraging is that, you know, about half of that pipe was made in the United States. A good chunk of the other half was made in Canada. In other words, this is a North American product that will be going into a North American product to move North American product. And, and I think you know, while he would like to see more of it made in the USA, and I think any new pipe, there's going to be more of a more of a U.S. Uh, origin to it. Um, you know, my hope is, is that he understands and sees the value in the pipe that's already been invested. And when you talk about energy security or energy independence, or he does, I think you know it goes back and forth questioning in Canada. Mm -hmm. Is that an, is that in reference, obviously, in your state, the Bakken oil field, right. that that explosion there, that uh, you know ramp up incredibly ramp up yes. production. Does that mean just American independence or is it a continental okay. idea? So I'm going to speak for me now. Sure, please do. <laughs> I think it's really important that we take a continental energy security view. Mexico, for example, is, is an energy producing state as well. But more importantly than that, it's becoming an emerging and fast growing market for U.S. products, especially natural gas. So when you get getting back to the NAFTA discussion, you know, the origin of, of product is you know one of the major sticking points right now but it's really important that our companies have access to Mexico and that's that's better for the continental uh, security now that means Mexico has to probably lighten up on some of their uh, some of their issues uh, down there as it relates to uh, who owns what attracting private investment that's a little bit of a barrier for them do you understand I guess the nervousness on the part though of just regular Canadians uh, based on the sort of Well, let me just say this. Um, you're not unique in that. <laughs> in our own country, we have the same challenges and in other parts of the world. I think we all have to understand that this, is, this isn't just a, a flash in the pan. This is the new normal for a while with this president. All of that said, he didn't get, become a successful businessman the way he is by, by being a poor negotiator or by, by hurting people along the way. Um, I would say that you in Canada, your young new leader is a bit unconventional as well. And while not um, ideologically the same, they they are um, they are similar in the sense that they're both a bit out of the box. They're not traditional, and we all have to sort of get used to this new this new relate this new way of doing business. But the relationship remains the same. Well, we'll leave it there. I'm Vash Capellos. You're listening to the West Block podcast. He didn't say it fast enough. He didn't do it on time. What about the alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right? Do they have any semblance of guilt? We have to close down our government. We're building that wall. He hugged me. He wanted to kiss me so badly. That was just a sampling of what Donald Trump has said since becoming president. As you can imagine, a lot has changed here in Washington since then. And as a consequence, doing business in this town is a lot different as well. So how do you navigate the new reality here? Former Republican Party chairman Michael Steele has some ideas. 
Thank you so much, Mr. Steele, for joining us today. A bit of a windy day, but a beautiful one here in D.C. That's great. Uh, I heard, uh, when I was researching for this interview, I heard you say that the fall won't be a pretty one for Republicans. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, uh, as we've already begun to see, as Congress has come back to town, the, the turbulence around the, the DACA issue on immigration, uh, certainly the president's push to, to do something still on health care, then you've got infrastructure and you've got tax reform. Oh, and then there's that debt ceiling question. As you can see, there are a lot of things that are stacking up for both the House, Senate, as well as the president. Uh, and nobody's on the same page. So a lot of, a lot of the tension that we saw in the early, earlier months of this administration around some of these issues will continue to play out this fall uh, as the stakes get a lot higher. You have to take an action on the debt ceiling. We've seen that now pushed back uh, to uh, you know, uh, December, uh, much to the consternation of Republicans, the president sided with the Democrats. So this president is already beginning to show his independence. Uh, if, if you hadn't figured it out by now, you do at this moment understand his independence is break away from the party in, in some respects in order to get his agenda done. Should that come as a surprise to anyone? I don't think so. I, I was talking about this during the transition back in November that this president has run a campaign has always been about his own self-styled form of politics. You can call this the Trump wing of the Republican Party, which I think in light of what's been happening recently uh, is emerging as the Trump Party. Uh, and so you have this, this sort of uh, creation of a new space in politics that neither Democrats or Republicans have any real control over. Um, Steve Bannon put it best when he talked about the deconstruction of the administrative state, uh, that that was a part and parcel of where this administration wanted to go, how it wanted to push out its agenda, not within the typical confines of either political party, and certainly not based on some ideological principle established by Republicans or by Democrats. So if you're trying to do business in this town, how do you make sense of that? Uh, well, you, it's hard because you can't rely on the old structures nor the old uh, systems that would enable you to engage in the political conversation, uh, to conduct your lobbying, to do, because you don't know in any given moment what the president's agenda is really around an issue. The president, you know, instructs his uh, attorney general, Jeff Sessions, to go out and say, we're ending the DACA program. It is unconstitutional. It is illegal, right? The executive order that President Obama put in place. And literally, within hours of the, of, of the attorney general saying that, the president tweets out, well, if they don't get it done in six months, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it, implying that I'll just issue an executive order doing exactly what Barack Obama did. So how do you conduct business if that's, if that's the yin and the yang of the, of the relationship where they don't connect in a real sense? You know, the president is over here, everything else is over there, and you're playing catch up to where he is, and yet he continues to move this to a different space. So what's your advice to a government like our country's who is right now embroiled in you know, some very high stakes negotiations? Yeah. No relationship is more important to Canada than the one we share with the U.S. What would your advice be to our government to try and navigate this new path? Set your point. Know exactly where you want to be, where you want to go. Uh, establish the boundaries and the parameters up front, saying this is our goal, this was important to Canada, this was what is important, we think, in the, in the Canadian-U.S. relationship. Uh, and Mr. President, you tell us why this isn't important. You tell us why we're off or wrong. Force the conversation in your direction. 
don't allow for the free range president to just sort of go out and create a new space and then you have to come in and fill it. The, the, the opportunity to sort of hold on to some of those traditional relationships like Canada and the U.S. over issues like NAFTA and things like that um, is significant, it's important. And so at least one of the partners has to be grounded somewhere because the president is not grounded. He's not grounded in, in the, the history of NAFTA. He's not grounded in the relationship with Canada. He just isn't. That's not a criticism, it's just the reality. So if that's the case, Canada has to be the anchor in that partnership in many respects and say, come on, no, we want to play over here because over here we have a better understanding of what it is we're trying to achieve for both the U.S. and for Canada. And I, and I think that that's going to be an important first step. Before we go, I just quickly want to ask you, as someone who joined the party in 1976, who spent years and years in this town, who helmed the, the party later on, have you ever seen this town like this? No, I have not, which is actually uh, troubling yet exciting. I mean, it's, it's troubling in that um, uncertainty is not something Washington does well. And it, there are two things that it, it really counts on, relationships, and a certain degree of certainty, or a high degree of certainty. Um, this president doesn't have either of those. He has no re very few relationships, certainly on the Hill, uh, to speak of, and he's all about the uncertainty. He's comfortable in that zone. Um, but at the same time, it's exciting because the system, to be honest, did need to have a little bit of disruption brought to it to refocus both parties on what the ultimate goals and agendas are to move off of what has become this sort of entrenched, uh, sort of monotheistic political approach to uh, policy. We've always done it that way. This is what we firmly believe in all instances at all times. And the world is changing. We'll be watching. Thanks so much for your time. Great My to have pleasure. your perspective on our program. Great to be here. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thank you for listening to the West Block Podcast. For more, go to our website, globalnews.ca slash thewestblock. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and tune in again next week for another West Block podcast.